0: The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, May have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The Gospel of the Lord. Let's pray
1: together for a moment, Lord. Thank you today. Thank you as we come to the Scriptures. We pray, Come, Holy Spirit, just as we've sung. We welcome you in this place. We welcome you among us and with us. We pray now, Holy Spirit, that you would open our hearts and our minds. We pray, Lord, that you would open my lips and that you would speak. And as you speak, we would be led to Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, today we're wrapping up our preaching series called Trust Issues. And over the past few weeks, we've been looking at where we put our trust and in whom we put our trust. We've seen that some people tend to put their trust in what they've got, how much they have in their stuff, in their money. And others put their trust in themselves Well, today we're going to see that some people put their trust in the externals of religion. But that's not what Jesus has come to offer us. See, religion is about the external things people do to try to appease the divine, to please God, to get into heaven. But Christianity isn't about that. It's actually about a relationship of trust. It's about the Holy Spirit coming into our lives, into our hearts. It's not so much about our head or our wills, though it certainly involves both of those things. It's about the Holy Spirit coming within, coming in us to make us something new. As we trust Jesus Christ as our Savior and our Lord. In well, our gospel lesson today in John 3, a very familiar passage, Jesus is approached by a very religious guy. He's a very externally focused kind of guy. His name is Nicodemus. Now, just a, a few things we need to know about Nicodemus this morning. He's wealthy. He's very influential in his country. In fact, the text says in verse 1 that he was a ruler Of the Jews. That means that he was part of the Sanhedrin. There were only 70 people in the entire nation at any one time who were part of the Sanhedrin. It's the highest legal and judicial and legislative body in the country. The, The closest thing that we have to the Sanhedrin is the Supreme Court. So this is a guy with a lot of influence. This is a guy with a lot of power. He's also a Pharisee. Now, you may know the Pharisees were a sect within the people of Israel, highly religious, focused on keeping the religious laws, strictly adhering to the traditions of their people. Like tradition was everything with them. Doing it the right way was everything with them. Doing it God's way. And religious purity was at the center of all their Pharisaical activity. It was at the heart of what they practiced. Everything they did was to be pure. To show others they were pure. To show God that they were pure. That they were holy, untarnished from the world. And so they separated themselves. Though they were among the people, they were very different from the average person. They strictly adhered to the religious laws. And this is what they believe made them right. Sacred, holy, acceptable to God. Now one last thing about Nicodemus. In verse 10, Jesus calls him the teacher of Israel. Not a teacher, the teacher of Israel. So he's also a prominent religious scholar. He's a theologian. He's got a deep intellect. He's got a keen mind. This is a smart, smart man. Like he knew the Bible, chapter and verse. Probably he had the entire Old Testament memorized. Like nowadays people have trouble knowing the Ten Commandments. This guy knew the whole book. But as we're going to see, he really doesn't understand it. He's got a lot of head knowledge, but he doesn't have much heart understanding. And he certainly doesn't Have a heart trust in God. So Nicodemus says to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God because no one could do the things that you're doing unless God is with him. So let me just translate that a little bit. Nicodemus is saying, right, this doesn't make sense. We don't get it. It doesn't compute, right? We see. We see the signs of God. We can observe the things that God is doing through you. Miracles, healings, deliverances, phenomenal things, huge things, mind-blowing things. And they remind us of the things that we have read in the pages of the Bible, of what God has done and the kind of things God does. But it doesn't make sense because you're not like us. You don't follow all the rules we follow. You don't adhere to all the strict practices that we adhere to. Like, we're the ones whom God is pleased with. So, what gives? That's a loose interpretation of the Greek. It's so like, what's up, Jesus? And what's so wonderful is Jesus doesn't answer his question. Not because Jesus isn't interested is because Nicodemus does what so many of us want to do. He wants to focus on the externals of figuring it all out. And Jesus, because he's so good and he's so kind and he's so insightful, says, look, I'm going to cut right to the heart of the matter. He's going to cut right to the heart of the matter where the issue exists for Nicodemus. He points to his real need, as he says in verse 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see, right? Which means he cannot understand the kingdom of God. Jesus says you've got to be reborn. The real need of every human heart, the real need of every one of us in this room and of every person who has ever lived and whom you have ever known is we need to be born from above. We need a new life. God's life has come to change us from the inside out, to give us a change of heart. And Nicodemus doesn't get it. I mean, this guy, you got to love him. He's it's like thinking like a scientist here. Right? That's his response. Verse 4, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? He's like trying to do the ge- geometry of it all, right? Like, that doesn't make any sense. What are you talking about? Jesus goes right back to the heart. He goes right back to where the issue really lies. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So what's he talking about? Born of water, born of the spirit. I don't think in this specific context he's talking about baptism, baptism itself. And we're going to have baptisms. The water doesn't save you. This is important what we're going to do. He might be talking about John's baptism. Some have argued that. You know, John called the people of Israel to turn back, to repent of their sins, to be baptized for forgiveness. So it could be that, but that doesn't really make sense in the context that we've got. I think probably what he's doing is he's engaging Nicodemus at the level that Nicodemus needs to be engaged. He's a Bible scholar. He's got the Bible memorized. And so what Jesus is actually doing is he's pointing back to what the prophet said. And multiple prophets said this, and particularly the prophet Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 36, God said this, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, a soft heart before God. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Ezekiel had predicted that a time was coming when God was going to do something new, something radically different. Instead of following religious observances to be right before God, God would do a work in His people, a cleansing in His people, a washing in His people, giving a new heart, a softness before the Lord, a new spirit. In fact, the Spirit of God would come to live in people, to change us, so that we would desire to do the things of God, but it would be an inside-out action rather than what so many people do outside to in action. Now, let's think about what Nicodemus values and what he trusts in, right? He is the teacher of Israel, so he values scholarly insight. He values the mind, intellectual prowess. He's a member of the Sanhedrin, so he values power, influence, right, advancement, societal, societal influence, leadership. He's a Pharisee, so he values strict religious rules that that he believes will gain a status before God for him, will gain him heaven. And Jesus says, that is a trap. That is a dead end. Because those externals don't deal with the real issue of the heart. It's the issue of sin. It's the thing in us that causes us to do the external things we don't want to do. The problem isn't what you're doing on the outside, the problem is in here that causes you to do those things. See, here's the thing about Nicodemus he's just like people today. He might be like you. He thought it was his effort, he thought it was what he did that was going to make him right. His ability, his morality, his religion, his activity, his good deeds that would gain heaven for him. Now that may appear to many people, it may appear to the eyes to be godly. But, but Jesus wants you to know that that's actually Idolatry. See, the religious person might reject sort of the obvious idols of the culture around, right? Fame, success, money, casual sex, physical body, beauty. Those are the idols of the external culture. And the religious person might reject all of those things. But they still have idols in the heart, This is what Tim Keller says. The religious person finds their self-worth in their morality. They find their savior in their rule-keeping. They worship their own goodness, thinking that their goodness will save them. And you can always hear it in their language. But I'm a good person. You might have said that yourself, maybe even this week to somebody. But I do good things. But I do religious things. I help people. I'm okay. I'm good. Jesus says the only way for you to get to heaven is for heaven to get in you. This new birth he's talking about is not something you achieve. It's something you receive. It's an act of grace. It cannot be forced upon you. It can only be received as a gift. Because you know your need for it. Because you recognize that without it, you're dead. You're lost. You're hopeless. That's why Jesus says in verse 16, and like if you've got one Bible verse memorized, it's probably that one, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to the end that all who believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting and eternal life. God loved you so much. Love's not about feelings, despite what our culture says. God was so committed to your good that He gave. That's grace. That's the language of gift. He gave Himself, His Son. He's lifted up upon the cross in your place, in my place. And He bears the punishment that we deserve. He dies a death upon the cross so that we who believe, that's language for trust. We who trust in what he has done would not perish, but would have everlasting life. Friends, you're going to die. I don't know when. Could be soon, could be long. We have this this great sort of amnesia over so many in our culture. Like, well, no, no, don't tell me that. La, 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 Don't say that. This is church. No, 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 no. We need to face that with reality. Because so much of the things you're doing to prove to God you're okay has to do with the fact that you are not at peace with your own death. I don't mean you're looking forward to the process. But are you worried about the outcome? Jesus says, you must be born again. So, so that's the question today. Have you been born again? That's what the text is pointing us to. That is what Jesus is asking by the Spirit today to you through my words, through the stirring in your heart. Have you been born again? You say, well, Chris, I go to church. Yeah, yeah, so do I. Big deal. I mean, it's good you're here. I go every week, almost. But I could stand up here and say the words of God and still not be born again. Yeah, but Chris, I'm from a Christian family. Yeah, that's great. They're probably praying for you right now. But I'm moral. Terrific. I'm for that. I'm good. Well, I don't know. Let's ask your spouse about that. Or your brother or your sister. Like, like, when I'm living in my own strength, I have a hard time even getting to church without getting in an argument with my wife. Some of you know what I'm talking about. I don't mean about me. I mean about you. Or your husband. Or your brother. Or your sister. Or your kids. Good person. Do you keep your own standards every moment of your life from the time of your birth to the time of your death, much less the standards of the Ten Commandments of God? Of course you don't. Please be honest about that. Jesus says you must be born again. It's strong language. It's the language of necessity. He says it's not optional. In, in a message by Pastor Stephen Cole about why you need a new birth, he, he tells a story from the 1700s, right? This 21-year-old Oxford student, well, he, he realized what a lot of college students realize. I am living a destructive life. Thank God when a college student begins to recognize that. Like, I'm falling apart here. And so he realized something needed to change in him. So he decided, I'm going to change. From now on, I'm going to be good. And so he decided, I'm going to deny myself of the, the normal luxuries I've experienced. He was a wealthy guy. And I'm like, I'm not even going to eat the food I like. I'm going to eat just food I don't like anymore. And I'm going to pray a lot. In fact, he often would pray all night long. Remember, he lived in the 1700s. He would often lay himself out on a cold stone floor of the chapel at Oxford. And some nights, because... Well, that wasn't enough. He'd go outside and he lay in the, the wet grass. This is England, right? Thinking that somehow that kind of prayer surely would change him. And he felt like he was putting a coat of paint on rotten wood. Like those outward deeds were simply a mask. He was trying to hide the inward corruption of himself. So that's when a friend of his, a college friend by the name of Charles Wesley, gave him a book called The Work of God in the Soul of Man. And that young man, whose name was Whitfield, George Whitfield, read the book and discovered that Christianity is the union of our soul with God. Christ formed in us. And this is what Whitfield said. When I read this, a ray of divine light instantaneously darted in upon my soul. And from that moment, but not until then, did I know that I must become a new creature. After having undergone innumerable buffetings by day and night, that's the religious stuff he was doing. God was pleased, pleased to remove my heavy load, and to enable me by a living faith, that's trust, to lay hold of his dear son. And oh with what joy, joy unspeakable and full of glory, was I filled when the weight of sin left me, an abiding sense of the pardoning love of God broke in upon my disconsolate soul. Whitfield's favorite scripture To preach was John 3.3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a person is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The man preached like something like 18,000 sermons. And sometimes to as many as 20,000 people in a day and an age when there was no microphones. And as he got further and further into his life, somebody asked him, Why do you preach on John 3.3 so often? He said, because you must be born again. Because he's being faithful to the message that God sent to lost people. Now, how would you know if you're born again? Is it a feeling? No, it may affect your feelings. Certainly joy and peace and love. Those are things that come along with it. But those in themselves aren't. Simply feelings. Well, Paul tells us what we heard read there in Romans 8. How do you know? Well, you begin to be led by the spirit of God led to do what? Well, to put to death the misdeeds of the body. That's just theological language for going, oh, I'm starting to hate when I sin. And I want to turn away from it. Not because I'm trying to earn something from God, but because of what Jesus has done for me. I love him so much. And he has done everything necessary for my forgiveness, for my cleansing. I don't want to do anything that grieves his heart. So you're led to put to death the misdeeds of that fallen part of you that still seems to hang around even after you've been born anew. And you begin to see that fear Fear, fear starts to flee away from you. Fear of God. I don't mean a holy reverence. I mean the fear of punishment. That spirit of fear goes away. And you begin to rest in the fact that you are a beloved daughter. You're a treasured son. You're the delight of your heavenly father's heart. And your heart starts to cry out, Abba, Papa, Daddy. There's a new intimacy that develops. There's a new access and openness that you have. Have you been born again? And if your answer is yes, that happened long ago, are you you praying for the people around you who have yet to enter into grace? And are you offering yourself, being led by the Spirit, even when it means suffering, suffering? Because that comes with the territory of belonging to Jesus. In this life, we have sufferings. Sufferings because of our faith, not because we're uptight, by the way, or moralistic or narrow, but because we're so identified with Jesus that people who don't like him and want nothing to do with it will often kind of turn on you. Have you been born again? Are you giving your life so that others might be born again too. Let's pray. Oh Lord, would you do a work of grace even now in the hearts of men and women, boys and girls who perhaps have sat in churches their entire lives, but have never had an interchange by your Holy Spirit. And Lord, would you cause us as your children to find our rest in you find our peace in you, to find a new vision for your purpose for our lives in this world that others might know you too. We pray, Lord, that Jesus, the beautiful and glorious Lord, would be known and magnified. We pray in his name. Amen.